Hello humans, welcome to The Frontline, a leadership and business podcast brought to you by Peregrine Corporate Services, an Isle of Man-based fiduciary provider. My name is Martin Hall, and thanks for listening. In this podcast, we chat to an array of business leaders from different sectors to learn more about them, their market, skill sets, and knowledge. We hope you enjoy. Today, I'm joined by Tom. Tom, thanks for sparing us a little bit of time. Hi. Thanks for being, thanks for letting me come on. No, no pleasure, pleasure. So, for our listeners, perhaps some background. Where, where did you, uh, with that accent, where did you uh, initially school? <laughs> Unsurprisingly, by the accents, um, I was brought up and I was schooled in Liverpool. Right. Um, a community comprehensive and um, secondary education here, and also university, LJMU, um, studying mechanical engineering. Okay. Um, yeah. What took you down that path, mechanical engineering? Oh, I guess it would probably have to be growing up in the 80s, um, where I did. There was a lot of um, work and background in the sense of there's a lot of garages um, around by where I grew up. And my one of my grandfathers in particular was really a re- was a really good mechanic. So I always had a fascination and it used to get me into trouble, actually, of taking things apart, figuring out how they worked right. when I was younger. Um, not always putting them back together the way they used to be. Um, and my grandfather on my dad's side used to always, like, when he was doing something with a car, would pull me out of, of, of the house and go, do you want to come and help me and stuff? And then I think it was just born from that. Wow. Uh, and then, like, I developed the thing of, like, wanting to make something better. So if, you, if you're seeing how something worked, like, try and make something better. And again, it didn't always work, by the way. Like... I used to like break more things than than I fixed, and then it just went from there really. And then I, after secondary school, um, I could have stayed and done some A levels, or there was a new course in a college called Riversdale College, which was I think it was called an ordinary national diploma at the time, which was in mechanical engineering, and I, I took to it right away. And then from that. Um, well, at the same time with doing that, rather I became a apprentice mechanic. Right. And then I was doing that for like three years and then the natural course was just to go into mechanical engineering. Um, what kind of things are you learning in, mecha- for my naivety, are you learning in mechanical engineering? There's different disciplines. So at, at the start, you think it's just literally that mechanical stuff. So like moving propulsion from one thing to another, um, drawing liquids up from surfaces, stuff like that. It, but then as the years went on, certainly in university, it, it gave you a good multidiscipline. So as well as mechanical, obviously the, the electrical aspect come into it because pretty much everything that's mechanical needs an electrical power source. Um, and then the one area that really caught my eye, which I had no understanding of until this point was computer science. So. In the course of mechanical engineering, there was an element of software, software development, which I took a great interest to, in. But it was only a little bit. Yeah. It only formed a small fraction of the course. So once the degree course was over with, I didn't really think about it again no. for some time afterwards. And not to give away age, but I guess back then as well, Computers on what we consider them today as well as that infrastructure part of life. It it was a smaller, a smaller element. Yeah, absolutely. So I was quite fortunate in the secondary school that I had 
did at the time of us getting to the age where we were embarking on computer studies, they had the resources to put the up-to-date hardware in, which we were all completely fascinated by. And again, in the university as well, they had the latest equipment. And it was only there in the university where we become proficient in software and, and computer hardware as well. So, what, what years would they have been around? Oh, um, that was so, I was in JMU from 2000 and... Okay. Oh, no, sorry, 1999 till 2003. Okay, yeah. yeah. So I suppose when you look back to the younger listeners, Certainly mobile phones, I guess, starting to be on the horizon, but they wouldn't do anything. So it was very much desktop-based, wasn't it? And, no, and again, the technology was a million miles from what you see today. No, it was. It was Well, at the time, like like you know yourself, it, it, like it's the latest and greatest. So I remember getting my first mobile phone, which I still remember to make. It was a Motorola Memphis, and it had four AA batteries in the back. Nice. Yeah, so I think that was for my 18th birthday that I got that. <laughs> So when you uh, moved then into working life, where did that start? Okay, so after JMU, well, before that, actually, the last couple of months of, our, of the degree course, a lovely person uh, from a company called, an oilfield company called Schlumberger, came in and gave us a great presentation on career opportunities in the oilfield service industry, which I was fascinated by because Partly at that age, you want to see the world, you want to go out and explore, find yourself. And it was all perfectly suited to what I've done for, for the last couple of years, mechanical engineering. So I, I obtained the qualification sufficient enough to go straight into this company. And they took me straight away up to Aberdeen. And then from there, I became disciplined in what was called ESP at the time, electronic submersible pumps. So. There was a thing where we're an oil field and reached its natural equilibrium. So as you can imagine, oil's less dense than water, so it comes to the surface naturally. So there's not a great deal involved in taking oil out of the source until it gets to its point in its life where that pressure underground reaches its equilibrium. So then there's the need to put electronics and municipal pumps down to, to bring the oil field, the oil up rather. So I was responsible for creating the sufficient pumps to go down the oil field and to bring it to service. So that took me up to Aberdeen and then pretty much different places in the world doing that for a couple of years. Right. Would you be um, on rigs then, I assume, working? Sorry? You'd be on rigs working, I assume. Yes. Yeah, offshore installations and some onshore as well. Okay. So it depends on where, where it was in the world. How was life on, uh, on rigs? It was good um, and a really, really good experience that like, I, I take with me now, uh, with what I do. It got a bit tiresome, so as you as you get a bit older, then you realise that, well, for me personally, I didn't want to be travelling around as much. Um, I wanted to settle back in the UK and have more of a permanent residence. So I completely diversified at this point. I went from booming industry to public sector and went down to London and worked for uh, the police service. Okay. As part of the police service and spent a couple of years down there as a frontline police officer. Right. Actually, oh, okay. So it was that like beat Bobby type of... Yeah, yeah. So it was, a, it was a all emergency response um, for the first couple of years. And then from that, I learned to 
I was taken from my front frontline role and moved to operational intelligence, which was intelligence gathering. So it was at the time of the seven seven bombings. Oh, okay. um, and there was a massive drive to select people of a certain background to assist with the intelligence gathering. Okay. Uh, based on the counterterrorism demand. Based on your 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 history, then what what would what would make them pick you out to go? Well, you've got the skill set to to fit what we're we're looking for intelligence wise. I, th I don't think it was process of mechanical engineering or yeah I don't think it well I think it was an even balance between academics for, for sure as well as um thinking slightly differently maybe questioning more um I can't really pinpoint what made myself stand out differently um also I was, I was presented with, the, with a good opportunity and a unique opportunity in a very difficult time yeah and it was a role that it was very demanding and certainly challenging. Um, and at that time, and I guess every young person is, um, at that age, wanting to self-improve and push the boundaries a bit further. Um, so it was a challenge that I took and adopted. Yeah. And I ran with that in what was called the proactive units and the intelligence unit for a couple of years. And what, to go back, that that looks like fairly left field step from yeah, massively. What 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 was that? Just something different, or something that wanted that change? Yeah, it was something that was underlying that um, I wanted to do something that helped people. So coming back to when I was a child, making things better, I always had it instilled with me. And again, coming back to my granddad in particular, make things better. That that's right. the general ethos of my upbringing, um, which I was really like fortunate to have. And yeah, I just took it with me throughout each career. And certainly in, in that instance, there was a massive need to help people at a time when, you know, the wheels were falling off massively. The uh, the world was in chaos with, with the issue around terrorism. Mm -hmm. So when that, when that uh, or what was the next career step from there? So from the, from, from the, the police service, I was down in London. And at that time, um, my wife at the time, we wanted to have our first child so I didn't want to be away a lot so I wanted to move back further towards where I had the support network of my family and stuff which was back towards the north so I wanted to just um, move my career from down south up, no up to up north and at the time then the it was still in public sector still helping people um, there was career opportunities in Cheshire Fire Service. Mm -hmm. So I went from becoming a police officer to a firefighter. Yeah, right. So, and then I spent the next seven or eight years uh, at Cheshire Fire, uh, Cheshire Fire Service. And that was a, a job that I really, really did enjoy. Right. Um, partly because it was going back to something that I was familiar with. So there was obviously... Um, opportunity around firefighting and fire engineering okay. so it was going back to i was put on a course again i was selected for the high potential course which put me on several vocations with the institute of fire engineers so going back to what i knew and what i was comfortable with um working on formulas pressures for water flow stuff like that problem solving um so i had a great time there really yeah, right. Was it was that was that role? I presume you 
were out fighting fires as well as part of that role. Yeah, no, that, that was, it was absolutely that. So, yeah, I was part of emergency response. Um, I was a frontline firefighter and a fire emergency fire appliance driver as well. Right. So that was cool, filling the child with ambition, driving fire engines. Yeah. <laughs> and was that a, I don't know, I don't know. I'd always imagine jobs like that, while on the outside can look kind of good in regard to that there's obviously aspects that are hard to deal with as well and hectic as well. Yeah, massively. So the, the, it was good in the sense of it was something that I enjoyed uh, physically and mentally as well. So there was always a challenge, like, and Certainly with Cheshire Fire Service, if you went with them with like and asked I want to be better, I want to improve, at that time there was always courses available. So reference to before the Institute of Fire Engineer courses, there was one of them every year that you could go on each level and it was better. But like any job, there's pros and cons. Uh, the cons being some of the stuff that you did see on a day-to-day with fatalities and stuff like that, which anyone in frontline emergency services no isn't the best um and you can become a bit acclimatized to it but you take it with you throughout the rest of your life some of the things that you do see unfortunately um which isn't really ideal so you have that as well as the the shift patterns were really difficult they're not family friendly at all so if you want to progress in a career from start to finish in the fire service or something similar in frontline response, it does take a lot of the individual to stay and do, and do the full career. Yeah. And there are sacrifices to be made on the f- family front. I always, uh, my mother was a nurse uh, most of her life when she wasn't bringing up family. And outside of the shift as well, it was that I was always amazed. Certainly in her later years, she worked in hospice to be able to go and deal with things and, and see families. It's a small island, family, yeah. uh, friends in there and be able to then detach when you get home. Uh, it's pretty, uh, imagine a tough battle every day. Yeah, it is. I mean, you, like I say, you do become acclimatised to some aspects of it and it is a good a good, a good career for, for some people as well. Um, but at some point, I think it was... Coming back to it, I think it was around about 2002-2003. I was selected to go on a high potential development course with the fire service, which was a four-year degree course in leadership studies, um, which kind of, well, probably backfired on the fire service, unfortunately, because it gave me an understanding of the wider world of how senior management and organisations larger organizations operated and what i was being taught at the time about how a organization should be run was kind of contradictory to how i was observing at the time being run Um, and it was through no fault of their own they were facing at the time a massive budgetary crisis um so they were struggling um and just trying to for, for a turn of a phrase, firefight, yeah. <laughs> what, what, what they were doing at the time. But throughout that degree course, I had a realisation that I wanted to expand on my own knowledge base and bring something to the table that would improve people's lives and make things better for other okay. people. And that's where I come up with the idea for what I'm doing now. Yeah, 
Yeah, so so yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. So where, obviously you mentioned there, where the, the idea started from. Did you start developing that business while you were still in the fire service? Yeah, for sure. I, I, without sounding like a cliche, I literally woke up of the idea for eSign for electronic signatures. It was obviously there in the subconscious of sending a document digitally for signing. Um, and this is my first business venture and I had no clue where to go with it, how to run with it, but it was something that I definitely wanted to, to obviously do. Um, so through the four years of doing the degree course, I developed and I learned certain aspects of business. And at the time I was really fortunate because in Liverpool, there was a scheme, I think you're talking around about 2011 now, a scheme by the European Regional Development Fund um, for business incubators in Liverpool. So I remember I was in between the two shifts in the fire safety. You had two day shifts and two night shifts. I was in between days and nights and I went to one of the business incubators in Liverpool and said, I've got this idea. A um, bit nervous, but the guy at the time, it was a company called Pacific Stream run by Roy Jones and Ray Haig. And they were really helpful. Like, okay, great idea. Let's see what we need to, to develop it business plan, et cetera, stuff like that. And then it just right. went So they give you their fundamentals to start building the, the concept out? Yeah, massively. So I'd meet them once a week. They'd right. give me tasks, um, tell me where to look, what to read, stuff like that. And then it just progressed over that. Um, met other people in the creative space that they had, um, software developers and stuff like that, to, to build what I've got now. Yeah, I was going to say, so that the technical aspects then of build, building that, was that something that you were you know did you have the skill set to do that or was i've got the idea and i can i know the sort of headlines of it but i need to bring the super techie people in to write it. yeah massive, no, at the time it wasn't like super technical but it did require a quite integrative framework um and i was lucky enough to meet a software developer in the creative space that that worked with me um not for free but, um, yeah, yeah. Who, who can work for free um to build, build build the first iteration of eSign. Yeah. So that took about 18 months to, to, to build. And then we released it, I think it was late 2013. Okay. A bit unstable, um, but yeah. It's, it's a, like when you talk about 18 months and I'd imagine when you're in that journey, it feels like an eternity because you're keen to get, get you see your concept, get it out there where it's obviously a blip on blip really in timelines, but again, anyone looking to set up their own business. I mean, naturally, yeah. you think nowadays, well, everybody wants everything today, but, but things do take time. Yeah, I mean, there, there was a couple of driving factors in in that 18-month timeline. And looking back, probably for the large part, I felt like I was on autopilot. So at the time, I had um, one very young child um, limited resources, limited savings, um, shift work because I was having to do the fire service and the degree course with the fire service as well. So I was still working shifts, doing, I think it was two weeks university every six. And then in between, like I had Ethan, but look, I mean, I know loads of other people in this, in this, in, in this world of doing the same. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was trying to in between the days off, working with Pacific Stream, working with uh, I put all my savings in at the time into, into funding literally everything, uh, which was near backing, um, into getting this built. 
So, yeah, yeah it was quite difficult. And back then, I'm sure looking at the the laws around the acceptance of electronic signatures, was that something that was still going on? Obviously, certainly in last year, that the, the landscape people's view, but was that more people still like, well, can you trust it type of mentality? Massively. So, um, what I had is as I developed the business and the business plan, I was I knew I'd need more funding to get this across the line. Um, so I went to meet an individual from a Merseyside fund. And I think it was only after, well, it was a lot at the time, about two and a half thousand, just to finish up some of the development work. And I went in <coughs> thinking I was all prepped, had the business plan, the technology, um, the landscape, the, the, the legislation at the time, which was very expansive and ambiguous as well like there's no set rules or promises for what an electronic signature should be pretty much they just put the onus what what laws were out there just put the onus on the the receiving party if you accept it you accept it if you don't you don't and the legal ramifications were left with that person as well yeah right so when i was speaking to this fund asking for a couple of thousand I was, you know, you spend the week prepping. Um, again, I think I'd just come off nights, so I wasn't yeah. as, as awake as I should be, but I was definitely prepared. Um, and I give them the presentation. And I think I got cut short by the lady at the time um, who said, this is all good, but it's your first business. You've got no clue about business. Um, you're a firefighter and this is a technology that's untested legally. And essentially you're running it out of your spare room. Um, so that was a bit of a blow, yeah. Because right. like, um, in your head you think, well, I've got everything right, the business plan's spot on, but you just don't believe in me because who I am as a person. And they'd only met me for like two minutes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but as I left, there was another lady that worked there that ran after me and said, "Listen, I believe in what your idea is, and I, she really wants to help people." So she moved heaven and earth to get that bit of funding. Okay. And it was here, boss. I'd give it the massive no, um, wow. and then I got that foot and got it across the line. And, um, and there's an interesting story because a couple, a couple of short months after that, then the same fund was offering me tens of thousands oh, okay. <laughs> to, to push the idea forward. Yeah, right. Uh, but it just goes to show um, that was the, that was a big learning curve for me because it was the first big knockback that I'd had because at that at, up until that point. I'd lived in a relatively sheltered environment in like oil field and public sector, yeah. where if you make a mistake or you get knocked back, you can just carry on as normal because you've got that security blanket behind you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, well, that confidence and having that, that belief in the project. Uh, yeah. yeah. So just interestingly through the, and there's a couple of questions around as, that, as the business grew, but the strategy you had on day one as the, you rolled out, was that, was that a document and a and concept that continued you continually look at because one thing I see and I've seen in businesses is you kind of have this vision and strategy and then it can't, doesn't quite go in a draw but day to day life goes on and you don't revisit and you kind of lose the direction that you want to go in so for you was that something that was always a live document that was part of yes. that growth? Well the first iteration of the business plan I had was to build this platform it'd be perfect you put it out to the world wide web Everyone adopt it and love it, and it'd be fantastic. 
um, and then you just look at updates. It didn't work like that. You thought that you had a one-size-fits-all fits all solution. No, like the sales and letting industry wanted it to work this way, but then this industry wanted it to work another way. And with limited resources, you were kind of pulled every which way. And we got into what was called feature group, I think at the time, where we were trying to be too reactive and um, try and address things individually for people that we wouldn't really see a massive return on. So as a startup, and everyone at the time was quite new to the, to the industry, um, we did lose our way a bit and we did lose sight of what the fundamentals of the project were. Yeah, right. <clears throat> but we pulled that back. Yeah, right. And as you develop a business then, I assume there's points, you're obviously dealing with developers in the early stages, but there's a point where you're looking to, to grow, expand, take staff on, which involves more commitment, <clears throat> more risk. How, how did you handle that? Yeah, massively. So, like I said before, you, you thought we'd release this product, it'd make a decent revenue, um, and like you could just expand, it'd just be textbook, and it never was. So, the as we launched the product and people were using it, it wasn't really stable and it never quite fitted with everyone's requirements. But it was a tough time because it was a time where people wanted to start to switch to digital processes. But the big sticking point was the law. So at the same time, there was the a US competitor that were, I think they were about 18 months ahead and an awful lot of funding had gone their way as well. And the US market seemed quite easy to adopt electronic signatures. Now, the difference between our product offering and what they were, it was their product offering at the time was just a simple electronic squiggle like what you can do on a PDF editor now. Whereas we'd incorporated a lot of technology into our software, which you could scan using a QR reader and scan the documents. And if any manipulation had occurred in, in the document that you were presented with, once you clicked or scanned on the signature, it'd take you back to the original documents. So it was leading edge stuff that, we, that we'd come up with, but it was at a time when the technology in the market was not there, right. certainly in the UK. Um, and I always remember this because I, I remember reaching out to some healthcare leaders at the time to say, look, I think this will really help your processes. And it was just a very abrupt, it probably could, but the NHS, for example, we're not there yet. Like we've got a, our mandates paper. Ironically, the same people that point blank refused a couple of years later reached out to us and we've had several large projects. Yeah, right. Yeah. Probably um, just a bit ahead of your time or, or it's times, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Now, I mean, we did that loads of banging the drum in the UK of why people should be using our products and it really does make things better for, for, for a lot of people. Um, the, some industries, private in particular, so sales and letting um, industry and recruitment were quick to adopt it but other industries like the legal profession and public sector certainly weren't. But the benefits at the time is the large US competitors were starting to market in Europe and getting the realization of the benefits yeah. that we were trying to harp on about yeah. out. So we kind of rid on their coattails a bit. Yeah, right, right. 
And at that stage of leaving the fire service and going, I assume, full-time, was that a hard decision? It was one of the most scary decisions at the time. Um, I think <clears throat> there was a bit, there was a, at the time, with all the developments, the it seemed to be a never-ending cycle of funding, then development, then funding, with very little revenue coming in at the time, then trying to uh, market as much as you can. Doing that and running the business full-time and also running the fire service full-time and then doing the, the, the back end of the degree course and um, raising a family. I was stretched really thin. So I did make the decision after several discussions with family members to just, um, something's got to give. So I remember I'd been on a weekend away uh, with the children and I really enjoyed it. And then you, you get that feeling of melancholy because you know you're back at work the next day, uh, back in the fire service. Um, <clears throat> I remember someone saying to me once, if you ever look at a clock and go, oh, I've got to be in work, it's time to quit. Yeah, okay. And I did, I, I looked at the clock, I did that, and then right away, I phoned the, the fire service and quit that night. Okay, wow. Right. Yeah, I said, I know I've got to give seven days notice or whatever it was, and they were, they were, a lot, they were taken back by um, but they were very accommodating. Yeah, um, right. And then I had obviously a lot of text messages and calls that night off off people I'd worked with for the last eight, nine years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And yeah. if you, for listeners that are looking to start businesses or getting into that space, if you had advice for them, what would it be? Because that was one of the scariest moments that I've had because I'd left that security blanket of a public sector mm-hmm. paycheck, as it were, which, you know, is going to be there pretty much indefinitely um, to f- making sh- like uh, being supported by a business that you've built from the ground up. So the advice I'd give to people is if you've created something that you genuinely believe will help other people and be a benefit to them and you believe in yourself, then just do it. Yeah. Um, the worst case scenario, you get knocked down and you, f- you find something else. Um, yeah, yeah. At least you've tried. Yeah, I'd imagine that it's that, uh, you know, part of it, isn't it? Of not having the regret of 10 years later ago. Massively, it is that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and for the most part, I've seen people that have been fired from jobs, that have been made redundant from jobs. And even though it seems the worst thing in the world at the time, they always seem to bounce back. Like yeah. it's human nature for the most of us where if you trust and believe in yourself and you've got the support network around you, friends and family, then we do we do heal, we do recover. Yeah. And we do get bounced back. So we chatted just before we came on came on air and perhaps we can expand a little bit on it now about uh, I suppose that bounce back, that belief and, and some of that's ingrained in people or mm-hmm. more so with other people and less depending on, on their own personality. Yeah. Part of that's for you, I guess, for people to go out and build for themselves from self development and, and books and and, and self learning. So that's something you've you thought, I guess, always been keen on, just purely from chatting from the various jobs that you know to believe to go into a completely different sector and that you can function and, and, and add a value. Uh, so that's something you obviously pride yourself on doing constantly or a lot of. Yeah, there's different aspects of it. So some of my friends thought that I just couldn't sit still. So going from job to job. But for me, it just felt like a natural progression to, from like the thing I've done to to what I want to do. Um, 
but along the way there's been different books that I've read that, that have helped me um, and I don't know if it's just coincidence or or something else but I always feel like a book that I'm reading at the time is relevant to where I am in my life and it's not like I've gone out specifically to look at a book yeah um, Amazon's probably been clever in its algorithm and give mm. me some good suggestions yeah. um, I always seem to just buy books that easy one click um, yeah yeah, there's certain books that like that have really helped me. So, Bill Bryson, like the, a brief history of everything in the universe. I don't know if you've read it. No, I have. Again, it is on my list, but no, I haven't. It's about everything and anything and nothing in particular. Right. It's a really compelling read, like from evolution of civilization to to like the stars in the sky. But you'll take someone, everyone that reads that book will take something from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a couple of really good books. In terms of like running a business and being better as a person as well, there's um, Trailblazers by Mark Benioff, the founder of Salesforce. Um, That book's about his upbringing and his business journey, which is a really good compelling read. Even if you're not in business or in the entrepreneurial space or the startup space rather, it's still a good book for any person to read. And then when, before we were on air, you and I were talking about getting in that habit of where you feel you have to be doing something to self-improve and that can be detrimental. And like we said, we, we know people that, and ourselves included, that have been in that habit of, of a night time, I need to be doing something else now when you should be really relaxing a bit. Yeah. Um, there's a book called Atomic Habits, yeah. which helps steer people on the right path to us to finding that work-life balance. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, add, I'll add links in those in the show notes for, for people yeah. who want to want to pick them up. Yeah. Uh, two, two final quick things. The, the drive you clearly have. Do you, do you ever look back of where, where that you mentioned about people always thought you were kind of jumping jumping jobs or whatever, but really it's, it's the drive that's doing that. Do you, know, where, do, you, do you ever think about where that drives from? Do you know, I have tried to reflect on this throughout my life, um, and I think it's some of it's like circumstantial and some of it's driven from where you are in your life. So growing up and seeing some of the things that I witnessed, um, obviously the 80s in the, in the northwest of England was a difficult time. Um, and we, we did see some hardships, not as much as others, but that was certainly a catalyst and probably formed the foundation of wanting something um, better. And I was one of the first people in my family to, to go to university, which obviously was a big was a big thing back then. But then as you grow and then you have family of your own, it's all about developing and it's a balance act of being a role model for my three uh, children and wanting to provide them with a secure environment as much as helping other people as well. Yeah. So I've spent my most of my career in public sector where I've caught um, the general public on the worst days of their life mm-hmm. so i think it's born from wanting to help and make things better for others yeah. interesting so and then the final thing just people want to reach out what's the best way to to reach out yourself to eastline oh. etc yeah so um i'm obviously on linkedin um and we've got a twitter handle at eastline hq um i think if you put eastline in any social media handle you'll find us um, or you can contact us on email at info at esign.co.uk. Okay, cool. 
I'll, again, I'll add them in our show notes as well. Great, that's been a really, really interesting insight. Uh, yeah, and, uh, yeah, a good uh, whistle-stop tour of uh, lots of things that have been going on over the last yeah. next years. So th thanks for your time, Tom. It's much appreciated. Yeah, no problem. Thanks, Martin. Pleasure. Thanks for listening, everyone.